Our partner today is Food Forest Card Game. The deck of Food Forest cards puts you in the center of a web of relationships connecting plants, insects, animals, and people. With these cards, you will play fun, challenging games based on these relationships, as you match the inputs of one card to the outputs of another. For example, you can take a card that produces nitrogen and connect it to a nitrogen consumer, a card that needs a trellis to another that can act as one. By matching these relationships, players discover how to use the complex web of nature to their advantage, both in the game and in the garden. More than just a matching game, the team at Food Forest Card Game provide you with many different activities you can play with a single deck of cards. Some of these include Solitaire, where you build a food forest by mixing and matching inputs and outputs throughout the various zones of permaculture. Chicken, a poker-style game where you try to build the best hand and score the most points. And my favorite, Homesteader, where you work to build the most productive landscape possible while also managing the land, pests, and natural disasters. In addition to everything you can learn by playing, Food Forest cards are also responsibly sourced. Every deck sold goes towards planting multiple trees. They not only offset their impact, but honestly improve the environment. Learn more about the many games you can play and order your deck of cards today at foodforestcardgame.com. Before we get to the conversation today, a few updates. First, the Possibility Handbook is coming along. It's still rough and has a ways to go, but as I've said to some folks, I've been working on it for so long that I need other eyes to take a look at it, so the manuscript is in the virtual hands of some volunteers who are reading and reviewing the document to provide insight and ask questions so I can make improvements and bring it into the world in months to come. With how things are going, I should have a revised, though still rough, version mailed to Ethan and the Possibility Alliance in July for them to read and provide their own feedback. If this is your first time hearing about this project, you can find out more by visiting thepermaculturepodcast.com slash book, where you'll also find links to my interviews with Ethan Hughes, all in one place. Second, I'd like to travel to Indiana and Kentucky in July to record in-person interviews with Sam Sycamore of the Good Life Revival podcast and Jeremy Zimmerman, author of Make Mead Like a Viking, to discuss his new book, Brew Beer Like a Yeti. If time allows, I'm also looking at speaking with Karen Lanier to follow up on our conversation about her work as a documentarian and her film about women farmers, which we touched on in our interview earlier this year, and to sit down with my friend Michael Beck of The Push, who's also doing some work with Permaculture Action Network and I'd like to talk to him about their on-the-ground and community efforts. To make that trip happen, however, I need to raise a few hundred dollars for lodging and fuel along the way. You can help launch these in-person interviews by visiting paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or sending something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you do send something along, please be sure to include your mailing address so I can send you a note from the road. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Leslie Crawford, author of Sprig the Rescue Pig, a children's book about the journey of a pig on his trip from industrial agriculture to an animal sanctuary, and Rory, the child who helps him along the way. Using her book and that story as a place to start, Leslie and I talk about agriculture, food activism, parenting, and the lessons we, as adults, can learn from children. Enjoy this conversation with Leslie, and I'll join you again afterward. Then, Leslie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you went from being a journalist to writing Sprig the Rescue Pig? 
Yes, I've been a journalist for, I would say, well over 20 years. And this sort of came as one of those gifts at the perfect time when I was leaving a full-time job and somebody who had become a friend of mine who I had worked for a lot came to me, uh, Claire Ellis, who had just started a publishing house around food and sustainability. And she had in mind to do a series of children's books about industrial farm animals and asked me if I would try writing about a pig. And so I was like, okay, why not? I'll try it. So I, um, I sat down and tried to get inside of a pig's head. <laughs> Imagine what it's like to be a pig on his way to the slaughterhouse. And then taking that experience and desire to not go to that end led you to this adventure story of a child finding a girl who would care for him and lead him to a sanctuary? Yes, yes. The idea is to show the possibilities of a different kind of life for these animals. And even beyond that is to really get to know these animals. And what was great for me is getting to know pigs. And what we did with Sprig, we based the story on truth, and then it becomes a fairy tale. But the based on truth is there have been pigs who are in open air um, slaughterhouse trucks who have leapt from the truck. So that's how we had Sprig escape because unless it's somebody, you know, with PETA or something who somehow can get a pig out of an industrial farm, it's uh, no uh, easy task to escape, but a few pigs have. So that's how Sprig finds his, his way out. And then we have him going into the forest. And originally, the idea was he's going to meet a, a tech guy. I live in San Francisco, so I had in mind very clearly what this guy would look like, a young guy in the forest. But I told my daughter, Molly, that plot line, and she firmly said that was creepy that, you know, to have a guy wandering around the forest. So, so we changed it to, at her suggestion, a mom and her daughter who meet the pig. The funny thing is that right around that time, um, I'm a runner and I was running through San Francisco and I happened upon a couple walking their pet pig. This was not a domestic farm pig, which could get up to a thousand pounds, but this was probably one of those pigs you get when they're, you know, piglets. But by now, Luna the pig is a hundred pounds and they take her out in San Francisco all the time. And she had just escaped from her leash at the farmer's market because a dog had barked at her and she was running around and scared and they were calming her down with peaches and she was wagging her tail and I started talking to them and they said no she's she's almost like a dog she's almost better than a dog but she comes when called and she's enormously smart and sensitive and I got to meet this pig right when I was starting the book so that was also a real gift. And do you have a background in food policy and activism that led you to this direction of rescuing animals from farms and animal sanctuaries? Or was it just something that in your research and finding these truths led you to this area of interest? I have a background in food activism. I had started a farmer's market in my neighborhood that was based on a protest 
because this out-of-state corporation shut down a um, or an organic food store where the workers were about to unionize. And we've started a farmer's market, and it's now going strong 15 years later. In terms of animal activism, I would say that's come to me only recently. I, in the last five years, have just become more and more aware, become a devout vegetarian, got my own chickens, which is why I'm not a vegan. I do have my chicken's eggs. And then with my daughter, we now have some rescue king pigeons. But I would say that it's more, I have followed Sprig into animal activism and have become really passionate about it because of what I've learned through researching industrial farm animals. And it's one of the things that stood out for me about your book was the positive approach that it took to animals and food, because you show this journey of this pig from the industrial food system to a sanctuary and show that these other options are available and the relationship that children or people can have with animals that are usually seen as domestic food. And yet throughout your book, you don't push an agenda towards a different food approach but rather create a space where we can connect with this relationship and then make different decisions. Even if it's something as simple as asking whether or not we as an individual or a family want to continue to support industrial agriculture through the truck that we see at the beginning, or whether it's do we not want to eat pork. And even just hearing what you said about starting the farmer's market and your own decision to move in this direction is that, you know, my family and I have pulled back from the amount of meat that we eat, but through certain food traditions and health issues are still trying to find ways to navigate eating less and less meat, but in doing so are also moving towards more organic, more grass-fed, more local, so that we can continue to disengage from this industrialized system. And I find that through these kinds of conversations and the book that you've written, that it creates a more open environment to have these kinds of conversations. Thank you. I really, I appreciate that, that our approach working, at least with some people. I think, you know, the idea was, was not to preach or have um, some kind of a screed. Some of it is in my own life. I often have run the risk of being very self-righteous and, you know, I know the right way and want to tell people what they should do, you know, don't eat food and that's, you know, in plastic containers and things. But as a journalist, as a parent, I have found it really doesn't work shaming and trying to get people to do what you think is the right thing from a place of shame. I actually think the best way to win hearts and minds, whether it's about how much meat we eat and where we get our meat or just how we treat other people or think of animals is is from a place of empathy and understanding. Because once you stop seeing a pig or a person as the quote unquote other, you suddenly really see them. And so you maybe stop thinking of a pig as just bacon, but as Sprig, somebody who has talents and even superpowers, like their ability to smell from so far away and some acute cognitive skills and even a, a very deep kind of 
understanding. I mean, pigs can be very empathetic and curious and kind. So coming from that place to just get to know that animal. And I think of all the farmers I know who are doing pasture-raised pork and chickens and taking food in a different direction where it is relational again. And to borrow from someone who I really love, Philip Ackerman Leist, who talks about when we go to the grocery store, that it's this anonymous prepackaged meat where it's this complete disconnect from the animals that it comes from. And being here in central Pennsylvania, we have a big tradition among conservationists and hunters who very often we come together in order to protect natural resources and the animals around us, knowing, though, that we're still sometimes going to go into the woods a few times a year to bring home food. And the way that that kind of understanding changes the way that we look at what it is that's coming onto our plate. And that if we are going to continue to eat in certain ways, that it's less wasteful. And there's a better understanding and a giving of thanks for what it is that we do have. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Going out to the woods to, you know, get quote unquote food, I think is by its very nature so much more honest and has so much more integrity than the kind of horrors that go on, you know, with millions of animals on the planet. Um, but again, I have to be careful so I don't sound like I'm in a soapbox. But what is the way they're being treated in these industrial farms, really, it's just, it's it has nothing to do with, you know, sourcing meat from trying to give animals a good life, whether it's on, you know, pasture raised or letting chickens be chickens running outdoors. So, yeah, it's a it's a completely different way to approach, you know, our food sources. And that different way is one of the other things that I liked about what you've written in Sprig is that one of the things that I continually return to from training in environmental education and the works of authors like David Orr and David Sobel, some of the kind of premier writers on environmental education currently, they talk a lot about, you know, allowing space for children to be children and that we should avoid tragedies before like the fourth grade is this demarcation David Orr gives us. And what I like about what you've written, and I and I shared your book with both of my children, uh, I should say both of my younger children who are eight and nine. And I found that from sharing that with them, it really seems to fit well in like that six to nine age range. For any parents who are listening or grandparents who would like to get a, a copy of Sprig for their children, it really does fit well within that age range. And I like that, though there is an implication of the industrial food system, that it's a really positive story about this pig and the relationship then with this girl, Rory, and her mother and friends. Thank you. I'm really, I'm really glad it <laughs> spoke to you and your kids. When you were moving away from, as your daughter said, kind of the creepy IT guy in the woods, <laughs> and took it to this girl and her mother, how did you arrive at that point and then lead to this place where it's the two of them working together to find a good place for Sprig? Oh, gosh. You know, at risk of sounding humble-braggy, I think there was an echo of something that happened with my daughter about maybe it was a year and a half before I wrote Sprig, my daughter is a passionate animal lover. We had just gone to visit our in-laws who have a farm outside of Assisi. We had really just gotten back and she was volunteering at an animal fair. And 
um, next to the dog booth where she was, there was a a pigeon booth. And and I hadn't known that that was a thing, that there are rescue pigeons. But the like the quote unquote doves you see who are released um, at weddings are often unethically taken and put off into the sky. It's like, isn't that beautiful? They're not free, but they're actually domestic pigeons who are raised for squab or used for these purposes, but they can't survive. They have no skills to survive. So the lucky ones might end up at an animal shelter. Most of them quickly die. They can't survive. So she asked if we could get pigeons. And I had visions of St. Francis. And I try as best I can to respect my kids and where creative places they want to go in their life. So I said, okay, we'll get pigeons. So we, we built an aviary and now we have four pigeons. And the way we did that together, I think might've planted a seed for how Rory and her mom were together around this pig. That together because of this love and concern that the mother has for her daughter, that it becomes a family affair. Absolutely. It was my daughter Molly's love for pigeons, not my own. I've come to appreciate them that drove us towards having pigeons. And I think Rory's mom in in the book sees Rory, who has this incredible friendship, probably more than any, any friend she might have with this pig. And, and kids really, I mean, obviously adults can have that, but kids can have this overwhelming connection with an animal where it feels like their absolute best friend. And for parents to, I think, honor that is a great gift to the kid. And it's that approach and kind of, if you will, the normalizing of this relationship between Rory and Sprig. There was another thing that I really took away from this that reinforces this positive approach, this loving approach to animals and relationships and the way that we might interact with the world is also when Rory sees one of her friends and it's like, hey, I've got a pig. That's cool. You know, it's totally (laughs) normal. And I think about all the things that my children get into that their friends are just like, yep, that's neat. And then they just go on (laughs) that as parents, sometimes we might scratch our heads and go, where did that come from? That's a little weird. That's really weird. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They're just letting their freak flags fly, I guess. Yeah. I'm not thinking of it that way. Yeah. (laughs) And just kids being kids. And I really, it does continue to reinforce that upward approach to this. And in the same way, I think shows the power that children can have. And I think about this with my own family, that my children can really influence and change what it is we're doing based on what they're interested in. Isn't that great too? Yeah. And it provides a lot of autonomy for children but also then the involvement that parents can have with their children through these processes. Yeah, there are times when we probably want to scratch our head and just wonder, but you know, what more can we do by exploring this and opening up opportunities to be reading in the case of Sprig? You know, if we, our children get an interest in pigs or like your daughter getting interest in pigeons, I'm sure that you as a family had to work together to find out What goes into building an aviary? What are the rules and regulations for keeping pigeons like this in San Francisco? And all the things that you learned and were able to engage in because of this interest. Oh, absolutely. And also what's kind of beautiful is, I mean, talk about eccentric. My daughter walks her pigeons in a stroller down the street. So these are definitely first world pigeons. I mean, but 
you know, people will stop and say, wow, look at that, because there are these big white birds. And then she can talk about the plight of these kind of animals and make those kind of connections. And I think, you know, every time somebody can get closer to an animal, the more we are more joined in sort of, okay, we're all here together sharing this planet. Let's try to really understand each other. So those kind of connections are are wonderful. Within the permaculture community, we talk about the other than human world a lot, especially as the influences of like foraging and rewilding come into this realm. And so that we're thinking more about animals that aren't traditional pets or normal farm animals or, you know, whether it's the deer or bear that we have here in Pennsylvania to some of the predators in the Southwest or the wolves in the Midwest. I apologize. I don't know much about the wildlife of California. (laughs) Well, in San Francisco, I'd say our wildlife are raccoons, possums, squirrels, (laughs) right around San Francisco. I mean, we have coyotes in San Francisco as well. And there's a lot of education about it, about learning to live with them, not see them as the enemy, just they are, they get to be here too. And it's taking something familiar, like a pig, or as we've talked about pigeons, or for anybody who's raising backyard chickens, which we're still working a lot of ordinances around here to allow for them. I'm glad to hear that you have them. Well, if you want to hear mine singing in a minute, I can let you right now. They're singing their chicken song. So that's my little San Francisco farm. (laughs) (laughs) And how many chickens are you allowed to have where you are in San Francisco? I believe um, six, and I have six. I believe that's the limit. I actually, um, when I first got my chickens, I got these chicks that weren't sexed. Um, It was supposed to be a more humane way of getting them than through the mail, M-A-I-L. But then it turned out two of them were male. And they grew into roosters, and I quickly had to find a farm for them. So you can't have roosters in the city. With this work of Stone Pier Press and what you've done with Sprig and your own living with pigeons and chickens, are you going to be working on more stories like this that create more connections and relationships and make the idea of agriculture and animal agriculture and what we can do to treat animals more fairly and humanely? Will you be continuing as a children's author? Yes. Thanks for asking. I just finished my second book, which we're aiming to have that published in the fall. And it's called Gwen the Rescue Hen. And in this story, loosely based on fact as well, an industrial farm is torn apart by a hurricane and then where it becomes fictionalized. Gwen is spun around in my story in a tornado kind of sort of Oz style. And she actually lands on top of a diner that serves, it's called Ma's Chicken Lickin' Diner. So it's kind of, oh, this is where chickens end up. And then she meets a little boy named Mateo who takes her in. So that's, that's the second story. And then we intend to do a third one on cows. And who knows, of course, my daughter wants us to do one on squab, so aka pigeons. I like that you'll be adding more stories to this, and I hope that this would be good encouragement for children, families, or other authors to consider looking at the other animals that are out there in our food system and are in our different food traditions from around the world, because I think of how we could have a book on guinea pigs or cavies, and, you know, what it's like to raise animals socially, because I think about things like sheep or the guinea pigs, because I'm a big fan of guinea pigs, though I have none of my own right now, 
that many of these animals that we have or keep are social, and so that there is a need to have groups of them, and more than one. And how can we think about whether it's for agriculture or for pets in our household, to make sure that everyone who we call part of our family are well taken care of? And that is a wonderful point, because... Yes, if you're going to have a chicken, they really need other chickens. And actually, in my book, the boy gets to know Gwen well enough to know she needs to be in a flock and gets other chickens. And just to really attend to their needs so that, again, it's not just a pet, but it's another part of the family with their own with their own needs, and be it a guinea pig or a bearded dragon lizard, which we have. I really like that you've been able to share with us more than just sprig and pigs in this conversation about the relationships that we can have with other than human life in this world because of you know the squab or rescue pigeons that your daughter molly has of the chickens that you're raising in your own backyard which we got to hear there for a little bit and your own journey with that could you share some more with me about pigs and what makes them so interesting and unique as animals in the world and how that kind of created this joyful little character of Sprig. What I hadn't really known about pigs are their remarkable cognitive abilities. They are, by many measures, there are different ways to test animals' intelligence, and there's a spectrum of kinds of intelligence, but they are up there with dolphins and chimpanzees. Certainly, they can do so many of the same Things that dogs can do, come when called, recognize their name, build deep bonds with people, empathize. They can be quite cuddly and affectionate, you know, like the same kind of scratching on their bellies or behind the ears. Apparently, um, some scientist somewhere has had pigs play video games (laughs) just to see if they could, and they, they could. And they are quite curious creatures, another sign of great intelligence. So, you know, that said, unfortunately, um, domestic pigs, that is pigs raised for food in our industrial farm system, cannot be house pets for reasons we show in Sprig. They grow to be 800 to 1,000 pounds. So that's too big. They obviously, because they're pigs, they dig in the garden and in our book, um, Sprig, you know, ex- rubs up against this small tree and <laughs> knocks it over. And so if a domestic pig is somehow lucky enough to end up in a sanctuary, that that would be the best place for that kind of a pig. But they really are incredible animals. They are not dirty animals. They don't like to be near their feces. They really got that reputation only because they take mud baths, just as chickens take dust baths. There are different ways for some creatures to clean themselves and to cool off. And pigs roll in the mud as a sunscreen because of their skin. It adds a protective layer. But they're actually quite almost immaculate animals. They're very clean. So, yeah. And with that and everything else you shared with us today, Leslie, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? My thoughts would be, you know, most everybody is so busy in their lives. So it can really take some effort and definitely time to find a way to to have an animal in your life or to spend time with animals. But I think it does nothing but expand our worldview to, to form some kind of a relationship with an animal. 
And that could even be once in a while visiting an animal sanctuary or obviously having a dog or a cat. But I think being closer to the natural world in that way with a creature who thinks differently and literally sees the world differently. I mean, you learn about, you know, animals' eyesights. They, chickens have a greater ability to see, you know, they can see ultraviolet. So they're seeing things differently, but try to really get close to a different kind of being only humanizes us more. And I think we'll quite sincerely just make this a better planet. Then that's where we begin to save the animals without coming from a place of guilt or shame, but out of a place of empathy and love. So that we can fight for something we care about and fight for something we love. Absolutely. I think that is the most powerful way to come to bring it close to home and then go from there. So yeah, love locally. Well, thank you for that and everything else you shared with us today, Leslie, and for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for your kind words about Sprig. And that was Leslie Crawford. Find out more about her at lesliecrawford.net. Sprig the Rescue Pig, published by Stone Pier Press, is distributed by Chelsea Green Publishing. You can purchase the book at chelseagreen.com or look for it wherever you buy books. As you heard me say throughout this interview, I really like Leslie's non-confrontational and non-judgmental tone to the story of Sprig, that shows us what is possible in expanding our relationships and connection to the natural world and the other than human in a delightful and beautiful way. Not only did I enjoy the expressive language that Leslie used, the illustrations by Sonia Stangl are just a delight. If you're a parent or know some younger children, as I say, somewhere in that six to nine, maybe five to ten-year-old range, I recommend that you pick this up and start to share these stories and your values with the children you know. Also, Gwen the Rescue Hen, which Leslie mentioned during our conversation, is now available for pre-order at stonepeerpress.org. What do you think about the possibilities of the story of Sprig after hearing what Leslie shared with us today? Are there other books you would recommend for permaculture parents to read with their children? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes. Call 717-827-6266. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or send something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast. P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here... The next episode of the show is an interview with Sarah Beer, author of The Fruit Forager's Companion, as we sit down to talk about food, fruit, and foraging. Until then, spend time connecting with any children in your life, and share with them your love of Earth, care for oneself, and each other.